This presentation is from Service Design 2016, held in Melbourne in March. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Thank you. Our next talk is going to look at service design in government, um, and in particular some work uh, that Third View have been doing for the Queensland Government's um, Building and Construction Commission. Thank you. Um, we were just talking uh, about a different piece of work that Marie Claire and her team have been working on with the Queensland Government. So um, she's going to focus on the, the BCC today, but if you get a chance to ask her about the other work that they've got going on, do so because it's really interesting. With that, I'll shut up and I'll hand over to Marie Claire. Thank you. Thank you. Has my backing music gone? Yes, good. Thank you. So, good afternoon. As uh, Steve just said, I'm Murray-Claire Grady and I'm the Managing Director of Third View Consulting. Um, I would say that I, like, it's exciting to be here and to see a room so full of service designers. It's about six and a half years since we started Third View Consulting and whilst we've always had the view that we wanted to make Queensland, no offence, the most customer-focused state in Australia, um, it's really been quite a long journey. Um, one of the interesting things I noticed as I flew down yesterday from Brisbane, anybody fly Virgin, Virgin in the last couple of days? Anybody else see the article that talked about service design becoming the next design imperative? So it was actually talking about UX design, but then also talked about the shift to service design. So the thing that excited me about that is when it hits the Virgin Australia magazine, then we've really got hope, and particularly in Queensland, because it takes a while up there. So... So this is the fourth conference with the UX team that um, we've been at. And often I have a number of my team members here in the audience as well. And when we get back, we have this fairly intensive schedule of um, kind of 10-minute downloads. And we always think about the most memorable, the most interesting things that we've heard. So things like Dave Gray at UX 2015, prototyping workshop that Mel did last year. Um, there was a sing-along at UX 2014. That was pretty memorable. Um, but what, is, what always strikes me is the things that we remember the most are the real-life experiences. So that's why I wanted to share with you today some work that we've done up there with the Queensland Building and Construction Commission. Um, and particularly when you think of a Building and Construction Commission, it smacks a regulator all over it. But what we've learned from this piece of work is that just because you're an industry regulator and just because you're government doesn't mean you can't be customer focused. But I've got to be honest, if you asked me two years ago um, about customer focus and industry regulators, I would have said it was an oxymoron. There is no question that those two things I didn't think could go hand in hand. So before I go too far, those who've seen me present before will know that Third View love these things called customer shares, and it's where we actually reflect on experiences we've had and uh, how they actually impact um, the users around us. So my customer share today is about the parking police. So about two months ago, I visited a client site and I was conducting some research interviews with school principals, and no, they weren't actually the regulators. I'd been told that I could park at the site for a couple of hours, and, or at least for the duration of the interviews. So when I turned up and I saw some signs like these, I was a little bit surprised. 
Um, my interviews were expected to go for about two hours, so despite my discomfort with potentially breaking the rules, I figured that the organiser had made some other special arrangements. So I did what any decent law-abiding citizen would do, and I parked there. So two hours and 26 minutes later, I came out of the interviews and there was this little flappy bit of paper under my windscreen wiper. No way, a parking ticket. Now, I know I'd broken the rules as they were displayed, but I'd had fairly specific information that suggested that those rules did not actually apply to me on that day. So thankfully, the parking inspector was a couple of cars down. He was a lovely guy, his name was Paul, and he ran me through the process to appeal the parking ticket. He really understood my plight, and he explained that this was all about these damn commuters that were parking there all day, etc., etc. So back to the office I go, and I respectfully and kindly appeal the parking ticket. I'm a one-off visitor to the site. I'm a genuine visitor. Anyway... I reckon it was about three minutes before I got the response. Nope, no way, get staffed, go away. <laughs> then it dawned on me. These guys had actually set up a commercial operation that relied on catching people doing the wrong thing. So by me doing the wrong thing, there was their revenue. So they aren't out to deliver a great customer experience. They're out to enforce the rules of parking in Mount they're so focused on weeding out the commuter that they completely missed the idea that genuine visitors and clients on the site and the tenants on the site might actually want people to stay there for more than two hours. And I often wonder, do those people know how the parking company is treating their customers? So I also reckon the regulator was being a little bit short-sighted because in this instance, I will never, ever park at that site again. Um, and now I've shared that with about 120 or so other people in the room, and my recommendation to you also would be don't park at that particular site. So their chances of getting more revenue out of me or any of you has now dropped a little bit further. So take that, parking regulators. So what can we learn from this? If you look at regulate in the dictionary, it talks about control and direction and order. And in practice, the term regulator smacks of enforcement, police, governance, somebody who just ensures order. But as you're about to hear, it doesn't have to be that way. Let me give you a little bit of an overview of the QBCC. We've got hundreds of learnings from our workings with these guys in the last couple of years, um, but I'm just going to really focus on three particular areas that I think have made the real difference between going from a regulator to a customer-focused regulator. Um, I'm going to talk about culture, I'm going to talk about customer engagement and capability. But let's start with some background. Anybody who's from Queensland might know the QBCC by their old name. Research told us most people still know them by the old name. Um, which is the BSA, the Building Services Authority. They're a statutory authority whose role it is to actually support the building industry in Queensland and to enforce the rules and the regulations around it. For most homeowners, their knowledge of the, bill, the QBCC... See, I almost did it, didn't I? Um, BSA, QBCC, their knowledge goes as far as the licence that the builder holds. They don't actually know what that licence does or what it means, but they know that they must use a, license, a builder who has one of those licences. Basically, they exist to protect consumers from dodgy building practices, but also dodgy commercial practices. 
So in 2012, the BSA, as it was, was subject to, to a parliamentary inquiry. And out of that parliamentary inquiry, um, basically homeowners slammed them, the industry slammed them, and builders slammed them. So nobody was happy with this organisation called the BSA. They were considered to be a toothless tiger, they got in the way and added no value. So of course, sweeping changes were recommended. Um, they recommended a restructure, a refocus and a total rebrand to the QBCC. So in December 2013, the QBCC was born and Steve Griffin, who was the commissioner, uh, Steve Griffin was appointed as the commissioner and some of you might have come across him at Service New South Wales. At the same time, Queensland Government were launching public sector values, of which customer first was number one. So that gave Steve the real licence to say, we are going to be a customer focused industry regulator. The initial engagement for Third View was an assessment of the extent to which QBCC displayed a customer-focused culture. Um, and there's a couple of things on this slide. So a couple of these photos were taken in our very early conversations with them. And I've got to say, those yellow and black stripes, they just said, stay out. And that room down the bottom there was actually a room where they would bring homeowners and builders to come and talk about the issues they were having with their building. <laughs> And this door at the back, that wasn't the entry door. It was a two-way room, so it reminded me some, like something out of the bill. Um, it was like an interrogation room, absolutely terrible. Um, so the, the spider diagram on the right, so our assessment of how customer-focused they were is the section in blue. Their assessment is the section in red. They were, had a little bit of rose-coloured glasses going there. So anyway, we, we played that back to them. Um, and as Steve said, we held the mirror up. So we then set about on a culture change program with them and that involved looking at a number of their processes. So we redesigned some services and we also trained a number of their staff in how to take a customer-based design approach to designing services. The service design project that is the, the harder learnings I'm going to share today is the dispute resolution project. So this, it's the heart of if you, you're building a house or you're renovating and as a homeowner, at some point, you'll probably fall out with your builder. We found that to be fairly certain. Um, but the extent to which you fall out. So people turn to the QBCC when it's hit the point where they can go no further and they've decided they can't resolve it themselves. Um, so when we arrived at the QBCC, the presenting problem, this is actually a journey map, it's about a very low-fi one that we were doing, it's actually about 12 metres long. When we arrived at the QBCC, we were told to look at the part to the right of that arrow. So they told us they thought we needed to look at their internal processes to fix up the length of time it would take for a dispute to be resolved, because they knew that people were pretty unhappy with the time it took. And through research, what we found out is that all the effort needed to go here. 
So all the effort actually needed to go into the activities before the QBCC got involved. Because generally by the time people were bringing the QBCC in, it was too little, too late. And of course they'd never looked in that space before. So, as I said, through research we identified the problem didn't exist inside the organisation. This is just one of the quick summaries that we did for the QBCC on, on what we'd done. So it was a lot about collecting information, how much time was required chasing the right information. So consumers would literally send through stacks of information like this, most of which the QBCC weren't allowed to even look at. So, of course, then the consumers are frustrated. You didn't read the consultants' reports. You can imagine it was fairly horrific. But through the project, we were actually actually able to save about 11,000 hours a year of um, internal activity. So that's about six people a year. So if anybody ever says to you, you know, is there an ROI on service design? Absolutely. These guys got to reinvest six people a year by making customers happier. Um, kind of crazy. Anyway, so that aside, that's, that's the project we were working on. So our first learning, though, is about the culture. Um, so Taking you back, so here's an organisation that has been absolutely hammered by its clients, its industry, its customers. Um, at, at the time as well, this, many of you might not know this, but Campbell Newman in about 2013, 2014, um, took away about 14,000 jobs from the public service. So you've got an industry, or you've got a, a government, a bunch of employees who are feeling pretty sensitive anyway about their job security. Um, so when, when this guy comes along and says, let's be customer focused, they're all a little bit kind of touchy about the idea. There was a lot of change going on in this organisation. So culturally, we were going in to design a service, not only that would turn an organisation 180 degrees, but turn it at a time when they were probably at their most vulnerable. So the first thing I would say that we learned about culture was the executive vision and commitment to that was absolutely essential. And I know that we know that about any other large organisation, but I can tell you if you are trying to turn an organisation 180 degrees and you don't have the commitment of the senior executive, so this is the commissioner, um, don't do it would be my recommendation. So, because without their commitment, um, it just doesn't happen. So Steve was quite amazing. I remember when we first put the cultural report to him and, and there were some fairly brutal things and so I, I gave him the first draft that was gave it the warts and all and I said, Steve, tell me how far you'd like me to dial it back and, um, and just kind of desensitise it a little bit. And uh, he came back to me and he said, no, I, wanted, I want them all to see it warts and all. And uh, it was quite interesting that Steve, Steve was very clear that basically this organisation was going to change. And for his executives and his staff, it was OK if they didn't want to change, but they would get left behind. There was no question in that organisation about that how serious he was about the change that was about to happen. And I think they're the things that you've got to look for. If you're trying to change a regulator into something customer-focused, um, if you don't have that top, top person on board, then, as I said, don't do it. The next thing that we learnt was about setting realistic goals. So, as I said, this organisation was already fairly change-weary. Um, and if, what we learnt is that if your goals aren't considered to be even remotely realistic, then people actually write you off before you've started. 
And they actually almost look forward to just the moment when you will fail in what you're trying to do. Um, I remember an afternoon in February 2015 where we were given the task, so bear in mind, February 2015, we're given the task to redesign the 12 biggest services in the business by June 30. And part of that redesign was to implement Salesforce um, and put them all onto Salesforce. Um, so four months complete, live, done. Anyway, and this, w- this was actually one of the artefacts that came out of this conversation. So the blue line is about the February line and the red line is somewhere around the June 30 line. And that was the amount of different sprints and design runs that we knew we had to do. These were mega, mega pieces of work, each one of them. And at the end of the afternoon, um, we were working with a very big consultancy who basically had sat there and said, yeah, we can do it, we can just bring more people in. And I remember I kept saying to them, yeah, that's nice that you can bring more people in and we can bring more people in. This organisation can't cope with this. They just don't have the bandwidth to cope with it. Anyway, Steve came in at the, after, at the end of the afternoon and I said to him, Steve, look, I just don't think you can cope with it. Your people are just not up for this. They're already changed. Where We've got major issues trying to do this. And he said to me, Mary Claire, there is no option. And I said, but Steve, there has to be an option because we are going to make this organisation fall over. Anyway, there was no option. So sure enough, they signed up to um, get all this done in this four-month period. I reckon it took one week before everybody sat back and went, this is crazy, we can't do this. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we knew, we knew. (laughs) Um, And I think by setting unrealistic goals... We automatically signed up to have a heap of people white ant. So in many ways, whilst this was a huge learning for us, I think the best thing out of it was that it did only take one week for it to fall over. Because I think the worst thing that could have happened is if it had taken a couple of months before we started having those conversations. So the fact that it started to fall over really quickly um, was really valuable because that at least brought us three months and three more weeks to try and say what can we do by June 30 and how can we progress this thing. So my tip would be be realistic if you're making major transformational change like this and introducing a concept that they've never heard of before, bear in mind service design was brand new to these guys, then just be really realistic otherwise you're set to fail and you'll never get another opportunity. So our third learning about the culture was make sure that you build a united project team. Again, these are some fairly obvious things that you would expect. Um, If you aren't unified, our learning is that you can spend as much time and energy trying to line everybody up behind a consistent approach as you can trying to actually get the project work done. So due to the size of the project, and as I mentioned before, this was going to Salesforce, you can imagine that then makes it even bigger, Um, there were so many different contractors and consultants. I think at some stage there was about 40 people in the room, but from probably seven or eight different organisations. Um, And there was a fairly strong sense from a lot of the technology organisations that we'd be able to take the existing process, put it on a new platform, and we'd have some great wins, which would be correct, except that the existing process was really crap. So the existing crap process put onto a new technology platform just gives us a shinier but still crappy process. So a lot of the work we were trying to do was streamline things before it got there. 
So when we came along and we started to talk to people about the customer voice and the importance of talking to homeowners and builders and all those things, um, a lot of people just resisted it and said, no, 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 we know customer, we've got best practice in our organisations and we know how to design a form that a customer really likes and, yep, sure. Um, and I use the analogy with a lot of people that just because I know a little bit about the law doesn't make me a lawyer. And just because I might be a customer doesn't make me a specialist in the particular customer service experience that I'm trying to design. And at the end of the day, the only people who truly know what a customer, homeowner, builder, whatever it might be needs, is those people. Um, and we can't kid ourselves that just because we're experts in our field that we know everything there is to know. But that takes a fair bit of maturity um, and we found that not all partners had that uh, maturity, I would say. Um, so it took a lot of work for us to actually achieve the, a customer-focused approach in the partners, not just in the organisation. So they'd say all the right words about being customer-focused, but then we'd see outputs that would tell us that actually, no, we hadn't hit the mark. Um, in one instance, my team and an internal team were working really closely on a particular form. It was the lodgement form. And what we knew is that homeowners just didn't understand half the words. I mean, these are technical building type terms. Anyway, so the guys had developed this massive prototype of this form. It had all the logic in it. And it had all the words that had made sense to the customer. So they'd been doing some low-fidelity prototypes. And they got to the point at which they were sending that to the people who create the, the actual form online. And the next day it came back, and it was unrecognisable. We went, well, hang on. We sent you what we needed. No, 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 no. We know best practice. And thankfully, somebody turned around really quickly and said, no, 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 back. Because we know that had we put that in front of a customer, um, they would have laughed us out of the room. So really important to stand by your guns as well. So my tip would be to induct everybody in the approach you're using. Often the service design people are fairly well upfront. Um, and I think unless you've actually inducted the other project teams, not just the organisation, into the approach that you're using, you run a really high risk of it getting lost along the way. So as I said, our second major group of learnings was all about customer engagement. Um, Look, again, it's probably second nature to most of you in the room, but this stuff is absolutely critical that you spend time with them and truly understand what they're doing. Now, for the QBCC, as an industry regulator, they had never spent time just talking to their customers and finding out what they thought. So the first time that had happened at all, even close to them, was this parliamentary inquiry. And, of course, we knew how that went. So our first learning about this was the importance of conducting robust research. So a lot of people in the organisation had got that sense that you just go out there and go and have a chat. And a lot of the stuff that we had to teach them was about that going out there and having a chat was one thing, but more important was having a really clear and robust approach to designing the research, identifying the right participants, um, synthesising the research well and debriefing. 
because without that we knew they'd fall over. Same time, we worked with them though to design an, a research approach that would work for them. So it's all very nice for us to come in and say, yep, we're researchers and, and we can do this for you. But we really wanted to build their internal capability so that they didn't have to keep coming back to consultancies to keep improving their business. So the whole idea of conducting customer research was just terrifying for them. And I remember in the project team we were working with, there was this one lady, and she must have been in, in her mid-40s, and she had actually never dealt with a builder. So she had, she'd worked at the QBCC for years, but she'd never kind of dealt with a builder one-on-one. -on -one. And so all she knew was from this parliamentary inquiry and from the folklore around the organisation. And you can imagine things like, oh, this builder came in and he had a big stick and he was ready to punch someone. They're the stories that, that make their way around the organisation. So I remember she came to me when we were organising the research and she said to me, but Marie-Claire, how are we going to make sure I'm safe? I was like... I think he'll be fine. This, this builder will be absolutely fine. You know, he signed up to this because he wants to tell you his story. Anyway, so she seriously had this perception that builders were just aggressive and dangerous and they wouldn't want to help us. So we convinced her that it might actually be worthwhile to go out and have a chat to them. And so we arranged the interviews and to her credit, she took a really deep breath and she went out and she chatted to those, those builders. And I swear she did not sleep the night before that interview. She was absolutely terrified. But nothing could have been more powerful. The fact that we made her go out there and have the conversations with the builders was absolutely life-changing for her because she learned that people are willing to help, she learned the value of the research, and to this day I think she'll keep doing it. And I don't think she slept the night after that. Um, experience either and I think it was for the complete opposite reason. I think that we completely opened a door for her um, that made her realise how valuable it is and I've got to say as a service designer and as a consultant they're pretty special moments when you see an organisation that's never been willing to talk to a customer and you then watch them have the epiphany of the power of it it's very special. So for those of you who are butting up against people who say no we can't go out and talk to customers um, keep chipping away it is so valuable to, to get people over that line. So no matter how much they resist, keep going at it. Second learn, learning that we had about um, customer engagement is continue the conversation throughout. So again, we're in an organisation, they've never actually done customer research before. Um, so as far as they were concerned, we went out, we talked to the first group of customers and, well, that's it. You've got their opinion, haven't you? And we've started designing things based on that. Um, but, of course, it wasn't. So we needed to test prototypes with them. And particularly because if you think back to that journey map, what we learned from them in those first conversations, that we were dealing with an area that we really hadn't dealt with before. And if we go back to Alexandra's presentation about... Um, the trams, a space that actually QBCC had no ownership over. So it's a bit like the council footpaths. Um, if this was a space we didn't actually have ownership over. So we really needed to go back to customers. Um, and in some ways, I think we did the first round of research too well because people got really excited by it and they just committed to it. So they really didn't see the need to go out again. So um, it's a bit of an odd learning, but um, 
I, I almost wonder in hindsight if we would have been better having some more clear unanswered questions that people could grasp um, than, than we did after the first round of research. Um, for example, um, we had design criteria that are around things like um, make it easy for me to understand. Now, as designers, we would go, okay, we, that still leaves us with a fairly big gap as to what can that look like, and there could be a hundred different definitions of that. Um, if you're somebody who's in an industry regulator and you know your stuff, easy to understand, I can do that. I can do that in five minutes. Um, so they got really attached to, I, I guess, some of the simplicity of um, the research findings and said, no, 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 we can make changes based on this. So it's always worth the fight to keep going back to do the prototypes and to keep the conversation going. And, and in, in the regulator, I think it was actually really important that they saw that we kept going back and kept having conversations with customers on the way through. Um, and our third insight about um, customer engagement is to recycle the research with caution. So again, a lot of us probably know this, but in, in an organisation that's not done research before, they get very excited about what they learn. And what that means is that when people get really excited and they see design criteria coming out and the customer said that it needs to be more simple, all of a sudden that gets recycled all over the organisation. So stories become really powerful and they get shared all over the organisation and all of a sudden we'd see these projects popping up everywhere, kind of going, oh no, well we need to make this more simple and we need to make this more simple. Um, so without research, without insight, people had just really latched on to what customers had said on this particular topic at this particular time. So on the one hand, that's great because people got excited by the research. On the other hand, it was really dangerous because people were getting excited about research for a particular topic at a particular time that may not have been relevant to what they were then working on. So it took us a fair bit of coaching to help people understand that, that research had had a time and a place and a purpose um, and we needed to be conscious of how we were reusing it. The same went for the project team. So the internal project team that we were working with um, there was this sense that because people at the beginning of disputes resolution had told us something, that, that that insight would carry all the way through. And when I look at the disputes resolution project now, so um, 18 months on, that process has changed massively. So the things that customers told us and homeowners told us on day one a lot of those things have been addressed. They've got a completely different set of issues and challenges that they would look for us to address now. So you've got to be really careful about recycling research, not just to different projects, but for the same project at a different time. Um, and, and really educating your clients about that and your stakeholders. Finally, I'll, I'll share with you our learnings on capability. So, we, as at Fairview, we have a really strong view that we, we have an important role in building the capability of our clients. So I know there are some consultancies that would say, um, we come in, we hold the expertise, 
um, for the long term and we'll keep coming back. We take quite a different approach. We try and really train our clients in customer-based design and service design because we believe that then if they can start applying those techniques to other things in their organisation, then we really will achieve this Queensland most customer-focused state in Australia. So. Um, so we actually took an internal team. We were training 12 people um, from across the business as we started this. And then the QBCC, as they started this, this bigger service design piece, decided to take three of those, a couple of our people and a couple of other people, and they created this thing called the BBST, Building Better Services Team. So they actually created an internal service design team, and this team of people had the opportunity to learn how to do this for the long term. Um, so. I can't stress enough the value of building that internal capability. Um, our team worked, so our team being the internal team and the third view team, um, worked on the project full time for about the first 10 months and were immersed in every single part of the project. The good, the bad, the ugly, the whole kit and caboodle. By having that internal team integrated into the project and learning along the way, what we were able to do is actually build an approach that worked for the QBCC. So we were able to build an approach that took what we knew and then basically shaped it into a, something that they could use every day on smaller projects um, and on larger projects. Um, but obviously it's not all plain sailing. Um, when you're doing, trying to build capability on such a big, intense project, it takes time. And I guess one of the real challenges that we had is we'd be trying to teach their internal staff about how you might do something, how you might go and run a research interview when you've got all of two weeks to try and get said research interviews, 20, 30 of them, done. So that presents a real challenge. But I can tell you at the end of the project, it was worth it because today we don't have to be in there every day to know that they're doing some great work. Um, it also meant that the team had a huge reliance on the third view people to clear the path, um, which on the one hand, great for us. Um, on the other hand, though, there were times when the team members would be the one that took the call or saw the issue, and if they didn't deal with it well there and then, um, then it actually created a fair bit of angst. So I'd say if you're building internal capability, just make sure you've got a little bit of time to kind of clean things up as, as you're going along as well. On the flip side, the internal team know the business. They were able to clear paths to people who otherwise would not have wanted to get involved. So some of the team have now returned to other roles, but for the most part they've taken what they've learnt and they're now applying it across the business. So in terms of that culture change from industry regulator to customer focused industry regulator, having that internal team trained was really, really valuable and will continue to pay dividends for the long term. Second thing about this um, internal capability is, so this is, this is actually the lady who didn't want to go out and talk to builders. Um, so recruiting internal staff, their mindset. Um, so it's something that's really important to us, the, the concept of do we teach people the tools and techniques of customer experience design or do we pick people who have the right mindset and who might naturally take the right approach and then teach them tools and techniques. And we definitely go for the latter. Um, and again, that pays dividends because by carefully selecting people for their mindset, 
it meant when, when things got tough and push came to shove, they would naturally say, no, you must go back to the customer. So rather than saying, oh, no, well, we've taken these five steps and so you followed those five steps, therefore everything's okay, they'd fight for the customer. Um, and that's the... Um, issue I talked about earlier in terms of the form that we were redesigning, one of the staff on that day actually turned around to that other technology organisation and said, no, you cannot do this. We learnt this from our customers and if you don't honour what they said, then we're, there's no point in doing this project. But that all came from the fact that we actually recruited them on that mindset. So I think sometimes when we go into large, large organisations and bureaucratic organisations, you're given a project team who may or may not have been given to you for the right reasons. Um, sometimes special projects come along and it might be the result of a restructure and there's these people left over so they can go and work on this project. We were able to pick from the best and the brightest and we were able to pick based on mindset. And I would say if you're trying to make this kind of change, then absolutely go for mindset over knowledge or experience. And finally, our learning about capability is about integrating methodologies and approaches. So as I said before, this was a cultural question for us in dealing with a number of other organisations. But we went to a lot of effort to try and make sure that the approaches and and those kind of things were actually integrated across the different businesses. And this was actually a day where we were having a fair bit of argy-bargy with a number of other providers about how a sprint cycle might run. And at the same time, we'd been having some conversations. So we knew that if we wanted to go and talk to customers, by the time we'd got something through records and then the list had been washed and then someone looked at it to make sure that, that build, we weren't in conflict with that builder, there was only about four weeks between us saying we need to speak to someone and actually getting in front of them. And somebody had said to us, you know, well, our process, their, their particular process, means that you can't have four weeks, you've got ten days. And at that point, we had the choice. We could either say, okay, we can do it in ten days, knowing full well we couldn't, or we could say to the QBCC and to the project team, actually, no, we can't do it and um, you're actually taking too much risk by asking to do it. So you know what, if you, if you don't have time to do the research, then acknowledge that, don't do it, and, and give the 10 days to the other organisation. Um, what we found time after time, though, is where they skipped the research, they'd come back to us with the tail between the legs saying, OK, yeah, we really we created a solution and we really bombed it, so can we now go and do some research? Yeah, we told you. Um, but really important to stand by your guns and just say, absolutely, if, you know, if we've got to follow your process and that's going to take us four weeks, then that's what it's going to take. The risk of not listening to the customers and finding out direct from customers is just way too high. But the temptation is high as well in large bureaucratic organisations. So to summarise, as I said, we've had lots of learnings from the QBCC and really at the moment, I mean, today I've only touched on a few of them, but particularly when you're looking at a major transformation from, from regulator to customer-focused regulator, then the, the learnings that we've taken in both in culture, 
customer engagement and capability are absolutely critical. And I'd encourage any of you that are doing this kind of work to constantly sit down and say, what are we learning about the change that we're making as much as you sit down and talk about the learnings that you've got in terms of content. So I, I kind of think of it as we've taken this organisation from an organisation who shines the light on and says, hey, we will tell you what to do, to actually shines the light up to customers and said, customers, tell us what you think about our organisation. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, questions for Marie-Claire? My question is related to the time or a period how much an organization needs to consider for such transformation, like six months or one year or two years? Or... How long is a piece of string? Um, so we started, we did the customer focus assessment with them in May 2014. Um, look, in the last six months, they've been winning awards for their customer work. So I would say, that, from my perspective, um, I would say they've still got a really long way to go. Um, but in terms of the industry that they're in and what they've achieved, um, they'd made massive headway in 12 months. So 12 to 18 months, they had made enormous headway. But in the end, they'd probably only made great headway in one particular part of the business. Their next challenge is now to take that across the rest of the business. So, um, but look, I, th I think it's an evolving thing for any organisation that it's not about, you know, there will not come a day when you can say, yes, we are completely customer focused. But, yeah. Sorry, I'm interested, um, following up some of the stuff you called out early about uh, the culture-based change, what, from your experience, are some are kind of the indicators that you're about to go off course as opposed to waiting to realise that you've gone off course? What are an early warning sign that we'd want to look out for? From a cultural perspective, um, look, I would say our biggest early warning signs were the executive team. So we would regularly have conversations with them and not... Not formal conversations, sit down and have a chat. Um, we'd be out in the organisation and we'd chat to the, you know, we'd pass people in the kitchen, how are you going, how's the work going? That actually gave us a really good internal kind of benchmark on how they were feeling. So, you know, if, if there was one particular leader who you know, wouldn't turn up to meetings or would, would talk about completely unrelated things whenever we'd see him. And it was just those little things that had to have us going, you're not behind this anymore. Um, and then often what we'd do, we'd identify something, some little thing would go off in somebody's head and go, I don't reckon he's behind it. And then we'd go and look for other signs around that particular person. So we might talk to some of their team members and say, oh, what are you hearing about this project in your team? Oh, no, haven't heard anything for weeks. Right, we know that we're starting to have a problem there. But it was very much about having our fingers on the pulse and being on the ground. So, again, that's where that internal team were really valuable because they'd be wandering around the organisation all the time. They'd watch it all the time. So they could really... They could feel the pulse pretty well. One more question. Yep. Hi, um, I've worked at a couple of government organisations and we've always had a tension between this notion of a customer versus client. Oh. I'm wondering if you came across that terminology and how you overcame it? Um, yes, we come across that issue all the time. Um, 
And in fact, in Queensland, so once the government changed, as I said, they'd made it customers first was one of their core government values. And once the government changed a couple of years ago, um, they actually decided that they didn't like the word customer, yet that was one of their core values. Um, so customer versus client, you'll, you'll notice that we use homeowner and builder in this particular instance. So I guess what we've learned is to meet the client where they're at. So we will advocate for trying to use the word customer and we'll talk to them about how customer can mean a whole stack of things and that customer can actually even be a supplier. Um, but you know what, if, if it's not resonating in their organisation, we'll come up with the word that does. So for example, we do a lot of work in um, large superannuation organisations, they're members. Um, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of different words and you just have to get into the habit of using the right word, I think is the hardest thing. So, yeah. Thanks, Mary Claire. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. We hope you liked this presentation from Service Design 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.